Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Patrick Ishmael, James Scholes, and David Stokes. Patrick, December 1st was the first day to pre-file bills ahead of the 2023 Missouri legislative session. What uh, bills, if any, have caught your eye so far? Yeah, you know, there have been a number of bills that I'm real interested in, and and some of this is kind of uh, uh, deja vu because these are bills that generally speaking, we've been interested in in the last few years. One of the biggest topics that we've been interested in, of course, is the Missouri Parents' Bill of Rights. And there are at least three bills that that address that in that sort of terminology. Now, there are transparency bills dealing with uh, curriculum and with uh, school spending that are also out there, too. And I think there really is an interest in in educational transparency in all of its forms. But the idea of a Missouri Parents' Bill of Rights is, is popping up again. Again, the idea that parents should have a central role in their kids' education, should be able to see what's being spent, see what what's being taught. Uh, that shows up pretty frequently in a lot of this legislation that was filed in December. Uh, you look at other pieces of legislation, you see uh, the idea of Corporate income tax cuts. Um, there was discussion about that in the special session that just concluded this year that had the individual income tax cut passed. Uh, and briefly, there was a discussion about whether to include a corporate income tax cut. Um, there was pushback from the governor's office. It sounds like there's going to be a more serious conversation about that particular issue this year, which is great. Of course, the corporate income tax is destructive to growth, the, probably the most destructive tax uh, uh, to growth uh, among the taxes that the state of Missouri uh, imposes right now. Um, but whether it gets traction, you know, we'll we'll see. But there is some uh, uh, discussion and there have been bills filed on that front. Uh, personal property taxes, there's, a, a, of course, a renewed push to get rid of those. And of course, with property taxes, it's the, the, one of the big concerns is that if you have a property tax, do you really own that property? Uh, or are you really just kind of renting it from the government? Because if you stop paying that tax, uh, they can you know take it from you. Uh, I think that there are a lot of different uh, priorities or philosophies that we can have around taxation. I think real estate taxation on real estate makes a lot more sense because you can't move it outside the district. But personal property taxes can be gained pretty easily. And I think that moving in a direction where it's reducing and eliminating that, I think is probably appropriate. And so there have been and there's been legislation filed on that. There's also been legislation filed on certificate of need, which is kind of the idea that the government has a right to decide where hospitals uh, can open up, where long-term care facilities can open up. Uh, and, and I think that's inappropriate. That actually hurts, I think, a lot of patients and a lot of long, long-term long care recipients uh, by limiting their options. Uh, and hopefully that will get some, some movement. That, there, that bill has been filed probably five or six years now. So, um, you know, my fingers are crossed, but we'll see what, what happens there. And then finally... Uh, there's a bill called the Clean Slate Initiative, and it's a, a bill that deals with um, expungement of criminal records for uh, some nonviolent offenders. I think we'll talk a little bit more about that as the legislative session goes on, uh, but certainly there's been a lot, a lot of interest in it from both sides of the aisle uh, from a justice perspective, uh, and we'll have more to say on that as, as time goes on. But lots and lots of legislation filed, but that's kind of uh, uh, became uh, apparent to me that uh, from in my work uh, is probably going to be pretty important in the next few months. All right, I want to jump in on a few of these. The, the certificate of need legislation, I think, is so important. And, Patrick, you've been working on this for years. But it, it's, I just want to remind people that there used to be a federal certificate of need law. And it, was, it failed so completely that the federal government got rid of it, as have other states. 
Like, so it's so bad that the federal government said, well, we can repeal this because it isn't working. And other states have done the same thing, but in Missouri, we've kept it. it there's no business having the government and other hospitals, because, you know, other, other existing medical clinics and hospitals get to decide on whether or not their competition gets to open, which is just ridiculous. And one of the things to stress about it, one of the reasons we have so many urgent cares in Missouri over the past four to five years. And could you imagine having gone through COVID without urgent cares, you know, giving out 300 COVID tests and vaccine shots a day around, around the state. But we have all these urgent cares because they're not covered as much by certificate of need laws, because when they wrote the con laws for Missouri, uh, it's most, it's not entirely and only, but it's mostly based on the number of overnight beds you have. So urgent cares are sort of exempted for that because they don't have any overnight beds. So thank God for it. Because again, I can't imagine going through the pandemic without urgent cares treating thousands and thousands of people every every day. And it's just a ridiculous law. If the federal government can say it's a failure, uh, then we can say it's a failure too. So here's hoping that that is finally removed. But the, as Patrick says, the, uh, the rent-seeking interests protecting the con law in Missouri are are like the forest. They are strong in Jefferson City. Uh, and as for personal property taxes, you know, it is, as Patrick said, it's just far. I'm not opposed to property taxes at, at, at all. They're an excellent way to fund local, local government. But we should be focusing our property taxes on land and buildings, more so on land than we do. But land and buildings and the, the using Cars and boats and farm equipment and grain and livestock, all of these things are actually taxed as personal property. You know, there's plenty of people in St. Louis and Kansas City and Branson and St. Joe and Hannibal and Cape Girardeau who have their cars registered across across the state line to a, in their neighboring state to avoid that personal property tax in Missouri. And we can address this, make it just easier for taxpayers, more simple for government by moving the personal property taxing and focusing it all on land, land and buildings. That's just a much better tax policy. I'd like to jump in on this, on this point, too. I mean, philosophically, I'm opposed to property taxes for the reasons Patrick mentioned, uh, you know, who, who really owns the property. But practically speaking, as you said, it is a very good source of revenue, and it's a, it's a large source of revenue for schools. We use local property tax, most of it coming from property, from houses, those sorts of things. But we use this to fund schools. And so my question, Patrick, is if a bill like this passes to remove personal property taxes, do they have a plan to replace that revenue for, for local governments? Yeah, I think that that is part of the, the discussions that have been had now. Of course, you know, the, the idea, generally speaking, in the legislation that I've seen basically starts from a place of is the personal property tax an appropriate way to tax given how much can be gained? Because, you know, if you own a, an airplane, for instance, where that airplane sits kind of dictates where that personal property tax is going to attach. And but where does that where does that plane get taxed? So I think that's the first question is attacking the idea of a personal property tax. But allowing for greater latitude and taxing in other spaces to make up that that space where it's effectively a, a net zero effect on revenue. I mean, I think there are going to be a lot of proposals like that uh, as as it goes through the process. And of course, when I say that, 
going through the process, this may not go anywhere, of course. But I think that the, the discussion about the personal property tax, I think in the last probably three years or so, has really intensified. And I, and I think that the, the folks who are talking about it are getting a lot more serious about it. And so I'm sure they probably have half a dozen different proposals for how to make sure that whatever they're doing is revenue neutral. Um, but but certainly, I think that that's an important thing because getting rid of a tax is great. But if you have a service that is highly dependent on it, uh, you you have to account for that too. And in spaces where uh, you know a, a service is highly dependent on the personal property tax, I think you you do have to account for that. But I think the vast majority, though, and you correct me if I'm wrong, uh, David, when we talk about property taxes, it's not necessarily personal property taxes that that drive the services that that are provided. Right. There's. There's no service that is more dependent on personal property taxes than on real estate taxes. It it breaks down the same everywhere for the mo- for the most part. There might be particular businesses that have pay a lot of personal property taxes, like auto factories or casinos. So s- certain very small cities might have different. But on the whole, there's it's the same breakdown. It's the same ratios. So, and my understanding of the Hancock Amendment was that is is that if if the personal property tax was to be done away with it, basically every government that depends on property taxes would be allowed to raise their real estate tax rate up to a revenue neutral level to replace that lost personal property taxes, not to gain more, but to, to raise it up. And I don't think a vote of the people would be required. That would almost inevitably be litigated by, by somebody. And finally, I can't, not that we're on here to disagree, but since I'm going to disagree with the two of you, and I, I am not philosophically opposed to property taxes, <laughs> there, we have to fund government somehow. Uh, income taxes, property taxes, sales taxes, you know, what, what are the ones we're going to get rid of? I, and I do not support, I do not have a physical opposition to property taxes. Well, it's like I said. Philosophical uh, opposition. Right. It's like I said, though, I, I have a philosophical uh, opposition but a practical support because it, it is a stable revenue source and it has a lot of good features to it. So I, I understand where you come from. Well, and, and lastly, in, when, when we usually talk about taxation, good tax policy, usually we're talking about it from the growth perspective. And so income tax is bad for growth. Sales tax is less bad for growth. Property taxes are, are probably the best tax if you want a pro-growth tax system. But there are, of course, other different philosophies that one could consider. Uh, But yeah, absolutely. It would be very difficult, I think, to fund a lot of our current services if we just abolish the property tax. And so while there could be philosophical objections, um, you kind of have to weigh those against the the risks as well. And the final comment doesn't mean that property taxes can't be too high. And certainly in in some places in Missouri, they, they are. And there are some places where they need to be lowered. All right, and Patrick, one more question before we move on to uh, the bills that James is keeping track of. Um, you mentioned the Parents' Bill of Rights. There are several versions. There were several versions uh, during last session. We have our own version up at showmeinstitute.org. Do you have any sense so far um, of the pre-filed versions? Are they similar to the one that Show Me Institute put out last year? Is there a, a, a wide variety out there? What's the sense so far? Yeah, so the, the three bills that I've seen in the Senate are very similar to our legislation. Like, v- very, like, it feels very good because it feels like we did have an impact in a lot of these cases because the language is very similar. Um, so I, I think that there is an appetite to address the issue. Um, I was uh, speaking at the Herzog Foundation, uh, I guess, two weeks ago now, and just surrounded by a lot of supporters of private schools and school choice and homeschooling. And, you know, 
talking with them personally and talking and kind of the reaction from the crowd, it was very obvious that there are a lot of parents and a lot of taxpayers concerned about how their tax money is being used to, uh, you know, pay for curriculum, what curriculum is being taught and and how kind of out of the loop a lot of parents have felt, uh, not only just during COVID, uh, you know, with all the, the struggles and, and challenges that were during that time for, for education, but before that and after that. And I think that uh, it, this this may be kind of a, a point in that timeline of, you know, parents getting tuned in where this might be the year where uh, they where legislators actually realize that it's important. We thought that we were going to see a Parents' Bill of Rights passed this year in 2022. Uh, I think that uh, there's been a lot of talk for 2023. I'm hopeful the legislation looks good. Uh, the, the, the real question is, does the legislature have the will to do it? I think they do, but, I, you know, we'll find out in the next six months. And James, you focus specifically on education. We thought 2022 was going to be a big year for school choice in Missouri. There was a scholarship program passed. It's got some limitations on it. Um, as you look at the pre-filed bills so far, are you seeing movement in that direction? Well, certainly there's some movement. I would say the biggest narrative this year in education, though, is, is the supposed teacher shortage, and it's driving a lot of the legislation that I'm seeing. School choice is related to that, of course. So in terms of the scholarship program, and I'll explain why school choice is related to this. In terms of the scholarship program, um, we're seeing some bills to expand the credits. We're seeing some bills to expand the program's reach, that sort of thing. But I'm thinking more around uh, interdistrict choice or open enrollment is where I think it really relates to this teacher shortage issue. So school districts are making moves to the four-day school week, and they're justifying it saying – we have a teacher shortage problem, therefore we're going to four-day weeks to try to attract and retain more teachers. Well, in my opinion, that's also justification for a school choice or an open enrollment program. I mean, if you're a family, a working, a working class family, you know, you got to be at work at least five days a week most times, and finding childcare for your, your kid on that fifth day can be incredibly difficult. So no parent should have to go to a public four-day-a-week school when there are other opportunities available, and whether that's a private school option or open enrollment. And so I think the bill that I'm most interested in right now is really an open enrollment bill that will allow people to transfer to another school district. I mean, I think we should have that in any case, but especially in the case of, of school districts that have four-day school weeks. The other part of the teacher salary or teacher shortage uh, piece that I'm looking at is, is really related to the funding and of teacher salaries. So we formed in Missouri a Blue Ribbon Commission to study the teacher shortage problem. And they came out with a whole series of, of suggestions. I, I've talked about some of them on our blog before. Susan Pendergrass has talked about some, and I think Avery Frank has written a little bit. So we've, we've dug into this a little bit. There are some terrific suggestions and some terrible suggestions in there. The biggest problem that I saw from that commission's report and the dominant narrative in the state is as if there's a, a broad sweeping shortage that everyone's experiencing. And that's just simply not the case. What we see when we look at the data is there are some districts that have pronounced shortages that can't attract teachers. And it's not just because of salaries. Sometimes it's because they're a remote place where there are few people living there. But we see other districts where they're getting hundreds and hundreds of applications for an opening, right? So 
creating broad sweeping pro uh, solutions to a problem that's really localized, I think is bad policy. And so we're some, seeing some teacher salary proposals that do that sort of thing. The ones I'm most interested in, the one I like the best, is a bill that allows school districts, when they have a shortage, to place teachers at a different point on their salary schedule. So in education, when you come in, you start out at the beginning of a salary schedule and each year you get to move up to a higher level on that schedule. Well, if I need a science teacher and I can't find any science teachers, I, can, I could say if this bill passed, we'll bring you in at the 10th step so that you could get paid more and so they could use the salary to attract people. Interestingly enough, that's not allowed in Missouri right now. Like you can't choose to pay someone more because you need them to fill a position. And that bill would allow them to do that. That's a terrific bill that we should absolutely pass, in my opinion. So I'm looking at these school choice bills, these teacher salary sort of bills, uh, and there's a lot to look at out there. And so this narrative of fewer teachers, what do we know about the number of students in Missouri over the last few years? What do we know about enrollment? Yeah, I mean, the number of students in the schools is going down while the number of full-time teachers is going up which undoubtedly contributes to the teacher shortage problem. Like, look, there's no secret that the number of students enrolling in teacher preparation programs at universities is going down. You know, I, I work at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. We're seeing the same sorts of issues that other places are seeing. We're you know, wanting to continually attract more candidates, but there are fewer people going to college. There are fewer people choosing uh, education as a major. So I'm not saying this isn't an issue. What I'm saying is, it's a complex issue that we've got to look at in a nuanced way. And the point that you just brought up is an important point that is missing from the public narrative, that school districts are hiring more teachers while the number of students is going down, and we're saying, why do we have a shortage? Well, that's part of it. So I'm going to ask you to uh, wildly speculate here. You have a blog up at uh, showmeinstitute.org this week about one of the uh, larger school districts to go to a four-day school week, the independent school district. If you think about two years, five years, ten years down the road, um, is the four-day school week going to just kind of be the new norm? Do you think that there's going to be these school districts, which has is a, a large number in Missouri at this point, um, can they switch back to a five-day school week after going years and years and years potentially on a four-day schedule? Well, they could switch. Now, the superintendent in Independence, one of his talking points that he used when they were making this decision was, you know, X number of school districts in Missouri have switched to a four-day week and none are going back. Or maybe it was one are going back. And he cited Colorado where all these districts are switching to four days and none are going back. I would say once you go to four-day, it's probably hard to switch back because I, I think – Anyone would probably like working four days more than they like working five days. So once the teachers are bought into working four days and you've built the system, the structure around it, I imagine there's, it would take a lot of political capital to go back the other way. What that means is you'd have to have probably substantial turnover in the school board. You'd have to have the local community really raise objections to it and fight it and get it overturned. And that's a tough political process to do. So I think we'll continue to see more and more school districts go that way. Now, this is, again, why school choice, in my opinion, is so important. We shouldn't, you shouldn't have to go to that because it's your only option. If you're in a place that 
as a school district go into a four day a week, you should have the opportunity to enroll in a neighboring district or to enroll in a private school through one of our scholarship. Well, I say one of, uh, we have one scholarship program, but through, I, I wish we had many more through a scholarship program or open enrollment. We sh- you should have options. Well, we, t- well, I'm, I'm intrigued about several, several things here. When, of course, I think that we talk way too much about high school education at the Shomi Institute, and not nearly enough about what really matters, which is high school sports. <laughs> which, so, but I'm I'm curious how this is going to affect. Because if you're at a, a high school now that is you're going to practice four days a week in in season instead of five, I mean, how is that going to impact? And especially if you're a really good athlete, I mean, are you going to look more at private schools now? No, that's which, where you've got you get to practice five days a week. I mean, private schools have already. Overtake, largely overtaken public schools in, in sports championships, Consider especially when you consider that there's so, few, so many fewer private schools than public schools. So you wonder, are the school districts that stay five days a week or the private schools that are stay open five days a week, is that going to impact? And then do students start making choices in where they want to go to school based on, based on that? Well, you bring up a, a good question that I hadn't considered about whether it's even a requirement that they would go four days a week for practices. I could imagine them still going five days a week. I don't know of a restriction I mean, for practices. I, I don't know of a restriction that says you have to go you know, to school that day to have practice. I think you could have practices. Right, but you've got to find teachers now willing to, to drive in right, to, to right. work just from three to five right. <laughs> as, and just – Go back and no. so you gotta you gotta find coaches no. willing to willing to to do that. But you're generating an idea for me that might say, so the Missouri High School Athletics Association is largely independent from legislators' control, uh, you know. So, but it would be interesting to see a bill that said any school district that goes to school four days a week is not allowed to have practice more than four days a week. I think that might uh, go into Zach's question. It would really <laughs> generate some attention among parents. <laughs> <laughs> that might stem the tide of people moving to four days a week. And, and then the other question is a point, and I think you've, I don't know if you've researched this, but it's so interesting to see independents doing this because independent school district, you know, it sort of predates Show Me Institute a little bit, but but I do recall back in the late 90s and early 2000s, and Patrick probably recalls this, when, when a significant portion of the Kansas City School District sort of exercised choice under law, they broke away from the Kansas City School District and they joined the independent school district independent school district. This was a large part of the Kansas City area because the parents were so dissatisfied with what they were getting in the Kansas City School District. So here, so they sort of were given through the legislature the choice to change school districts. And now here you have independents switching to four days. I wonder if they'll give the families that don't like that the choice to to switch to a different school district. We we would certainly hope so. Districts don't seem very keen to jump on the bandwagon of uh, letting their students go elsewhere. To me, the the real interesting thing around independence is the the media in the state have fully accepted this narrative that there's a shortage without really analyzing the data. As far as I know, the Show Me Institute's blog post that we recently put up is the only one in the state to actually analyze the shortage data that DESE puts out. And, and, and what, what I see is independence gets, I would say, 13 to 15 applications per job, and they call that a shortage. In no job, they, they had one position unfilled in each of the years that we looked at, 
And in both of those years, they had multiple applications for that position. So I'm not saying that the pool of people isn't going down. It probably is going down. They may be getting fewer applications than they have in the past. But they're not hiring people when they are applying for some of those positions. And we don't know the answer why that is. They might not be good quality based on their opinion. But that's different from this narrative that there's a widespread shortage. And I think it deserves a broader discussion than it's getting. Some of those people might have perhaps liked the Show Me Institute blog post on their Facebook page once. So they're instantly, instantly not hired. Disqualified. All right, James, anything else uh, you're watching before we move on? No, those are the big categories. All right. So, David, we already talked about some of the things that you're watching. So if there's any other bills that you want to highlight, feel free to. But otherwise, we'll move on to a more St. Louis-centric topic that uh, you want to discuss. Well, one bill that I want to highlight, which relates to the Chesterfield TIF proposal, which was just passed by both the St. Louis County TIF Commission and the city of Chesterfield, is there's – I don't know if it's been filed yet. It's going to be filed it wasn't filed in the opening days of, of pre-filing, but it might have been in the past few days. But Senator Arthur out of Kansas City has a bill to allow school districts to opt out of tax increment financing, meaning that if a development, where which would usually take the new taxes generated from it from the schools and give it back to the developer or the, the TIF district, that schools would be able to opt out of that so that those funding for schools would uh, go to the go to the schools. This is particularly vital in cases like in Chesterfield, where the TIF proposal, which is now law, unfortunately, unless there's a successful lawsuit, which might happen, uh, though there's a strong residential component, meaning that Parkway School District, and to a lesser extent the Rockwood School District, are going to have to there's thousands of homes being built as part of this area. And these kids, many of them, of course, will have children who go to these public school districts and the school districts aren't getting any new money or getting very much less new money than they otherwise might uh, to educate them. So that's going to lead to tax increases on other people in those districts. So this bill would allow school districts to opt out. And this is not unheard of. There's already in the law uh, the, gives the authority for emergency districts, fire districts, ambulance districts, and 911 service call districts. They already have the right to opt out of, of tax increment financing if they if they choose to, uh, which some of them do, I think, quite often. So we're just giving school, this bill would just give school districts that same choice. Now, school districts are a much higher percentage of your property tax bill than these emergency districts. So I expect you'll see vehement opposition from the the developer subsidy complex but nonetheless it's a i think it's an excellent policy idea to uh because it really is an issue in these residential components of tiffs and in this chesterfield project specifically isn't there something strange about chesterfield funding a project with property taxes well right well, i mean chesterfield many cities and counties at least have some level of property tax so maybe they're giving up some of their own money as part of it usually it's a very small percentage compared to the school districts and the county and whatever. But in Chesterfield's case, they have no property tax. So they're funding the bulk of this TIF with property taxes, of which they're giving up nothing. They have a property tax rate of zero. So it's just a further indication of what a awful policy is and how the incentives are so easy for Chesterfield to pass this tax increment financing package requiring the school districts, the zoo museum districts, the special school district, the community college district, and others to give up their property taxes for what Chesterfield wants when Chesterfield is, is giving up little to nothing. 
David, I, I drove through Chesterfield on my way here today. Well, you drove through that, all that horrible blight. Uh, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say the blight was just astounding. I, I, I mean, I, I was, you probably fe- feared for your life. <laughs> Absolutely. It was dangerous out there. When you pass the mall on 6440, you're just, you're locking your car door. You're making sure the, the you know, roll them up like Clark Griswold said in vacation. <laughs> it's, you're feeling, your life is in jeopardy when you go through that blighted portion of Chesterfield. Chesterfield. I, I commend you for the courage to just come into the office, James. <laughs> well, and that, that's a, that's a good point. And the, the other um, thing that we always talk about with TIF is the but for test. So you've got it's meant to be blighted, and there's the but for test. It wouldn't happen except for the te- and Chesterfield is an area where I'm sure you saw it when you were driving through. This, they're building stuff everywhere, so it seems like it's over two, including in the TIF, including in the area of the TIF, where they said that they wouldn't be able to do the project without the TIF. But they started some of the developments before the TIF was approved. So either either they're completely making up the but for, which is my guess, or they're just were so confident that the the uh, the the fix was in, for lack of a better term, that the TIF was going to be passed, that they didn't bother waiting to actually get the uh, ink dry on the legislation. Either way, it's terrible, terrible public policy. Uh, and then they moved pretty quickly on this, right, to approve this TIF? They did. They moved extremely quickly, even setting a, a special session uh, last week in Chesterfield to, to get it passed this year, which wouldn't normally be necessary with a TIF. The the start date from one year to the next wouldn't really matter much, but I would imagine that it, this was being rushed. For example, in Webster Groves, they rushed it uh, two years ago because they had to beat a, a incoming prohibition there were a TIF and a floodplain was illegal, and that Webster Groves TIF was in the floodplain. So they had to pass that in December because as of January 1st, it would have been illegal. Uh, but this one, I think they were rushing because they've already started some of the projects, and therefore next year's reassessment would be capturing that that construction and uh, reduce the amount of the subsidy they could get. All right, and uh, last topic, because you're already warmed up, David. Uh, so there's a program in the city of St. Louis that was approved to send some, some version of guaranteed income to some residents. Can you explain the program? Well, the, you, you summed it up pretty, pretty well right there. They're taking all this federal stimulus funds, which, as we recall, was passed on an emergency basis a couple of two years ago to save our economy. And here, two years later, where f- some cities and counties are still finally getting around to spending the, the remaining millions of dollars of it. So some emergency uh, two years ago, of course. But they're taking their federal stimulus funds and building a pilot program of a, of a guaranteed income program, which some cities around the, the country are doing. I think it's just terrible, terrible public policy. There's actually a a, a strong libertarian streak, Charles Murray, Milton Friedman, and others that have supported the idea of guaranteed income. That is just saying everybody in America gets a baseline salary. And, the, and for people who aren't working and like that, the government will provide that up to twenty or 30000 whatever whatever that might be. But the vital thing for all Milton Friedman's idea and Charles Murray's writing and others is that you do this to replace the existing welfare state. Well, that is not what any of these cities in America instituting their own guaranteed income programs are doing. It's just becoming one additional welfare program, one additional way to put people on the dole and make them dependent on, on the government. So the city program is just, it's terrible public policy. Uh, people, look, 
I'm I'm certainly fearful it's going to become popular. People like getting checks from the government. Uh, politicians like sending people checks. They especially like doing it so when it's a a gov- it's money from a different government. In this case, the federal government. But you're just you're just getting there's this is so bad. They're going actually out of their way from the news reports. At least we read about it that they're going to make it so that to make sure that they don't send people too much money that they then become ineligible for other existing welfare programs. So really they're not attempting at all to help people get off of, of wealth, the welfare dependency, get off it. And look, I'm not saying there's shame to being on welfare. Nobody should have a scarlet W. People go through hard times. People are in difficult situations. Certainly many people are born without the blessings that many other people have financially. But at that same point, you should want to get people off of dependency and to have a program like this just going in the opposite direction is a terrible idea in the city of St. Louis. One thing I might add to that discussion is that I know that there is interest in the legislature to look at the idea of welfare cliffs and trying to better align state policy making so that there isn't a risk at any point, like you said, David, about someone deciding to do less work or, or changing what their work plans are because if they make more income, they fall off of a program, a government program that traps people in property in uh, in uh, poverty. And I know that there there is awareness of that at the state level. So, uh, you know, whatever St. Louis is doing, hopefully, you know, some of the efforts at the at the state level from the Senate and the House, maybe they'll be able to start putting their hands around this problem. But it certainly is a major problem. Yeah. To do the opposite, <laughs> the opposite thing, I would I would hope or or. Well, it's, it would probably be, have to be done primarily federally to actually dramatically change how we do the welfare system in, in America. All right. Usually to close out, I ask everyone what they're keeping track of, but this whole episode's kind of been about that, and we're just a few days away from Christmas, so we were talking about it a little bit before we started recording, but we'll just kind of take an informal survey here. We're sitting here on, uh, it is December 19th, and Patrick, I didn't know your answer, um, but for the listeners... Uh, Who's done with shopping? Who's got shopping left to do? So, Patrick, why don't you start us off? Yeah, I have all my shopping left to do. I, I try to make sure that I, I can completely focus on the gift giving process. And so being able to you know, push it into a very limited number of days, I find that to be very like calming and relaxing. And uh, and so I will get it all done. Rest assured, everyone that I know who's receiving gifts, it will get done. Uh, you you can expect it, and uh, but no, it's going to be a great and relaxing week after after work is done. Patrick, sure. I didn't receive my gift from last year. I, it's in the mail. I don't <laughs> darn darn USPS. So I I would say I'm I'm about eighty percent finished now. The challenge is going to be the wrapping. Getting the wrapping done before Christmas usually requires yeah I've got four kids. It usually requires at least two nights staying up till about three a.m. Sometimes that's Christmas Eve. And that's usually not fun. David? I have a little bit of shopping left to do. We're doing very little shopping this year. We're, do, we're redoing our kitchen right now, so we have no money. <laughs> uh, so the kids are going to pay the price for that with uh, reduced Christmas, Christmas gifts. I think they're old enough to uh, fight through this and, and understand. But if not, well, maybe they'll just have to learn a hard, hard lesson that Parents make choices in life, and this year their choice is not to give them very many Christmas gifts. Well, and what child doesn't want new fixtures for uh, 
for Christmas, so I think they'll be happy with that. Well, I'm in James. Like Camp, we have no Christmas tree. Like we're we are underdoing Christmas this year. There's no house decorations. There's no Christmas tree. We're we're, we're going to Florida to get away from the construction during during Christmas. So there's no tree. There's no there's no Christmas cookies because we have no stove to make Christmas cookies. Like I guess I, we, I, walked, I guess they have these things called grocery stores we could go to. I walked by David's office earlier and I just heard him saying "bah humbug" <laughs> every few minutes. All right. Um, well, good luck to everyone who has to finish up their shopping this week. James, Patrick, David, thank you very much. 